I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. It's the end of the year, and I think this is a really nice time to share things that brought us a little joy this year. So today we're sharing something, a story about a climate solution that could be described as cute. Not a word that you hear describing climate solutions very often. It comes from our friends at the podcast How to Save a Planet from Gimlet. And... Let's just dive in, shall we? Enjoy, happy new year, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is the show where we talk about what we need to do to address climate change and how to make those things happen. Hey, Kendra. Hey, Alex. So you are an elite member of the crack producing and reporting team here at How to Save a Planet. And uh, you're here to tell us about something you recently did. You went on your first field reporting trip for the podcast. I did. Literally. I was in a field. <laughs> you know, that's not what field reporting means, right? Like, it doesn't mean you have to go to a field. Uh, Wait, I've been doing it wrong this entire time. <laughs> what were you doing field reporting in a literal field? I was uh, making friends. <laughs> with with sheep? Yes, those are sheep. Oh, they're coming. They're like running. <laughs> Hello, this is number five. She was hand raised. So that's her name, not her number. <laughs> so the voice you're hearing, apart from the sheep, is this woman named Judy St. Ledger. She's a shepherd, and she tells me this delightful backstory behind number five's name. So this girl was born in 2016. Say that. And she was the fifth of a set of quintuplets. Now, sheep will commonly have one or two babies, but five was 
unheard of for us, either before or since. So she's a well-beloved member of the flock. <laughs> I love <laughs> <laughs> like, are you just like surrounded by sheep as you're talking I to am. Judy? Yeah. And that, did you hear them breathing? Like, because they were like sniffing the microphone. It was great. Uh. <laughs> Five. And, you know, her kin. Uh huh. They don't really know it, but they're all part of this climate solution. The sheep are. Yes, the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me that sheep. Or a climate solution. I'm telling you that they can be, and that that's what we're talking about today. How sheep are helping the climate. I'll explain after the break. When we're back. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Welcome back. So before the break, you're telling me, Kendra, sheep have a role to play in helping address the climate crisis. And we've talked about a lot of climate solutions on this podcast, but for my money, this is probably the most adorable solution we've ever discussed. And you're going to explain to us how it works. So we'll get back to Judy and the sheep in a minute, but to explain how sheep fit into a climate solution, I have to introduce you to someone else first, Keith Hevner. He's a communications manager at Nexamp, which is a solar company. And he says that solar companies, they all face a common problem. You'd be surprised what kind of impact shade can have on the performance of a solar farm. Shade, the enemy of the solar farm. It is. <laughs> you see, a lot of solar arrays are built on fields where plants like grasses, brushes, and trees can grow tall and block out the sun. Solar panels are often angled so that the lower edges are about hip height or so. They're low enough to the ground that tall plants and weeds can cast shadows that reduce the amount of power that the panel can create or generate. Mm -hmm. So operators like Keith's company, Nexium, they have to constantly cut the grass. A big part of the civil engineering that goes into designing the site is making sure that the grass and the wildflowers and the weeds um, don't jump up far enough to obscure any of the sunlight hitting the panels. And maybe the most common way of doing this is with a lawnmower. Yep, heard of it. But lawnmowers have drawbacks. But a while ago, people hit on a different solution. Instead of lawnmowers, we can use sheep. And for us, it was really an issue of, okay, we can manage the vegetation at these sites with a fossil fuel burning fleet of lawnmowers and weed whackers, or we can employ a more sustainable approach with the grazing. Come on! All right, let's, we're actually going to walk to our left. Which brings us back to Judy, who we met at the top with the sheep named Five. She grazes her sheep on solar farms. And she's one of a growing number of shepherds in the world of what they call agrovoltaics. Agrovoltaic doesn't really roll off the tongue, so I will probably stick to saying sheep solar, which has the added benefit of making me laugh. Right, you've been talking about sheep solar the entire time you've been doing this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's not professional, you but... You find any excuse to say sheep solar. <laughs> so Judy grazes her sheep on these solar farms not too far from her own farm in the beautiful rolling hills of upstate New York. And when I went there this summer, it looked like classic farm country. Weathered wood clabbered farmhouses with grain silos, big fields of hay and grass. It's Amish country, so I pass a man driving a horse and buggy. 
And so this the solar farm is like right n- nestled among the farms up there. Yeah, it's on a road, and there's a big chain-link fence around the whole property. And on the site sit these solar panels and long rows that are 300 to 600 feet long. Mm -hmm. A football field, by comparison, is about 360 feet long. And each row is about 10 feet apart from each other. Uh But Judy doesn't let the sheep just go anywhere. She only wants them grazing on vegetation that's gotten tall. Mm -hmm. And the idea is... We like to put them on the grass, we say, when the vegetation and grass is as high as our knee, and we take them off when the vegetation and grass is as high as our ankle. Okay, so how does this all work? To keep the sheep from sort of grazing all over the field at once, she uses this lightweight portable fencing called electric fencing. It sort of sends this uncomfortable current through you. Mm -hmm. Um, The sheep learn to stay away from it, but it also protects sheep from predators like coyotes. And so to charge the fence, Judy uses a portable solar charger. So it's even more solar on a solar site. Mm -hmm. So this is my solar charger, and I'm turning the charger off and disconnecting it from the fence so that we can now bring the sheep through the fence and have them graze the last part of the solar array. Is it hard to move them? No. Um, Sheep are not so stupid. (laughs) They understand that they're going from less good grazing to fabulous grazing, so they're happy to make the move. Yeah. And they trust you. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Yes. Yeah. Our primary job is to make sure that they are happy and healthy, and I like that job. This method of constantly moving the sheep to ungrazed sections of the land, it's called rotational grazing. And not only does it keep vegetation low, it actually helps the soil be healthier and sequester some carbon. This is something we touched on in our episode, Soil, the Dirty Climate Solution. And in that episode, we talked about how, like, grazing animals on land, they, they poop, they sort of prime the soil, and it helps add nutrients that can then help sequester carbon. Which is good news because sheep, like cows, they burp methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. So when they're involved in this rotational grazing, that can help offset some of the impact from their methane burps. Exactly. It's better for the planet and it's better for Judy because it's a way for her to feed her sheep. But not only does she get to feed her sheep, she gets paid for it. The owner of the solar array pays her for the service her sheep are providing. That's sweet. It's because normally she would have to pay to feed her sheep, right? Yes. Yeah. And Judy says her sheep are a better solution than a fleet of lawnmowers. They're cleaner than lawnmowers in many ways. They're less noisy, or I should say, more pleasantly noisy. Um, (laughs) Exactly. The noises are way cuter. (laughs) So cute. Uh, And they can get places mowers can't, in conditions that mowers just wouldn't work well in. Like the day that I was there, it had rained recently. Mm -hmm. The ground was super muddy. Um, Judy took one look at my hiking shoes and, like, took me into her barn to get a pair of galoshes. Like, they were not up to the task. Yeah. It would have been evil of me to let you wear those in here. Let's go, girls! Come on! Come on! They don't like the mud so much, either. (laughs) You okay? Yeah. I just went down, like, (laughs) feet. This wet ground would have been a, a problem for a mower, but not for sheep. The only way you can manage this vegetation is with something like sheep. Yeah. It's the only way. Come on! These guys, you can see, they can easily go under the low edge of the panel. And that's the goal. The goal isn't to make 
the vegetation look like someone's lawn. The goal is to keep the vegetation below the low end of the panel. Okay, so grazing sheep is good for the shepherd. You get paid to graze your sheep. Good for the solar array operator because the sheep, you know, can get, go to places in conditions that mowers can't. It also just sort of sounds like a sweet gig. Like, was it fun hanging out with Judy? It was so much fun. So, like, h- how does somebody become a shepherd? I asked her that exact question because as I was complaining about how out of shape I was, Judy told me that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that she was in sort of similar situation. Mm. She's actually a veterinary pathologist by training. And, you know, if an animal was sick, they couldn't figure out what was wrong, they'd call Judy. She did a lot of work at SeaWorld. She worked on sea lions and dolphins, and she traveled all over the world. Whoa. Right? But she knew that as she was getting older and, and looking towards retirement, that she wanted to get into farming. So she bought an old farm in upstate New York. The quality of the soil on the farm that we own is not terrific. In many places, the pasture is almost down to bedrock. She knew she wanted to use rotational grazing to restore the land, but she just wasn't sure which animal to use. We literally borrowed six sheep and four goats from one of our Amish neighbors. About 20 minutes after we borrowed them, the four goats had broken loose (laughs) and ran back home. That day we knew we would be sheep farmers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... That was the day she became a sheep farmer. Yeah. How did she become a solar sheep farmer? Over time, she got the hang of raising sheep. Some of the sheep she'd sell for meat. Others, the ewes or female sheep she'd keep for breeding. She was making things work. And then one day, a neighbor, a farmer who lived some 40 miles down the road, asked Judy if she could borrow some sheep. Mm -hmm. This neighbor had started grazing on a solar site but didn't have quite the number of sheep that she needed. Now, Judy doesn't entrust her sheep to just anybody. So before she agreed, she got to know the neighbor, her operation, and she got to visit the solar site. And it all made sense to Judy. The economics, the way it fit into Judy's broader understanding of conservation and a sustainable agriculture. Hmm. And things really started to take off when on that solar site, she met Lexi Hain. I got involved in solar grazing because I had a farm in the Finger Lakes. And like Judy... Lexi was looking for new ways to bring in revenue. She'd heard about sheep solar happening in other places, in Europe and California, and the idea was intriguing to her. So when she learned about sheep solar happening a bit closer to home in North Carolina, she jumped on the opportunity to learn more. In 2017 or 2018, she called a state extension agent in North Carolina, and he got her into a farmer training program. On the drive down, she decided to do some independent research. And from Google Earth, I could find solar arrays. So on the way to the training, I I stopped at a number of solar arrays. I could tell immediately which ones were grazed by sheep and which ones were treated like golf courses, frankly. They looked like lawns. Saw a lot of herbicide use that I wasn't very happy with and then resulting erosion. And uh, that was another big eye-opener. The way companies get that lawn-like aesthetic is in part by using herbicides, you know, those chemicals that kill or stop plants from growing. And in this case, Lexi was looking at solar sites, but it's not just solar sites that do this. Like, a lot of golf courses do this, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem is the way those chemicals work and how they are often applied means the plants can't hold onto the soil, so you get erosion. Got it. So that's what Lexi was seeing. Like, she could see they looked like lawns and they had erosion, and the sheep ones didn't. 
Yep. The ones with the sheep, they work. And these were not small. The first one I saw was over 450 acres. And I thought, oh, wow. And also, of course, I liked them better, but they, they work. You know, it's like, what is this? This is this interesting concept. And and there's a sign on the gate, like very clearly with, you know, please close the gates, you know, and managed by this farmer. And then there's a picture of a sheep and then a picture of a guardian animal. So there's like a little donkey or a little guardian dog, which are special kinds of dogs that live with the sheep. Wait, guardian animals? Yes. The story <laughs> just keeps getting cuter and cuter. Sheep, as you know, are prey animals. Right. Um, things like to eat them. And so what you will do is you'll put a guardian animal that will go after the predator if the predator enters the field. Got it. And you'll never guess what Judy uses as a guard animal. She uses llamas. <laughs> <laughs> the ferocious beasts, the ferocious beast known as the llama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apparently llamas, if a coyote makes its way into a field, you know, the sheep will run away from it, but the llamas will run towards it. Wow. Guard llamas. <laughs> Um, I would amazing. really like some guard llamas for my apartment. Okay, so back to Lexi, one of the early proponents of sheep solar in the New York region. She was on her way down to North Carolina. And then she gets to the training. They were very kind to me, and I learned all the sort of assessment and evaluation techniques and thought, okay, well, hey, this works. And then I also sort of said, hey, I, if I go back to New York and do this, is this okay with y'all? And they said, Sure. We're not planning on start, you know, grazing as far north as that. They said maybe Virginia. I said, okay, we're good. Um, so there's plenty of room in the market and very much this evolving, emerging industry. So Lexi makes her way back to New York and she's excited. And so she starts talking to other shepherds like Judy. What ended up happening is that the few people who were these early emerging solar grazers just started talking to each other. And then we kind of said, we'll buy a website. We'll buy solargrazing.org. And it was available. We'll just we'll just have a little placeholder there where we keep a couple bullet points so that people know, you know, there can be some best management practices around. And um and, and lo and behold, it's become this this reasonably, you know, well-known organization. And the organization is called the American Solar Grazing Association. And one of the first things they did was to work with a law clinic at Pace University to build a solar grazing contract. The idea is that shepherds looking to get into solar could download it to set up the terms of agreement between them and solar sites. And since the American Solar Grazing Organization first launched roughly at the start of 2019, they've amassed just under 400 members. I've been doing this for a few years now, and this winter, uh, a new company approached my grazing business and said, uh, well, what do you, you know, the lawyer handed us this contract and said, what do you think of this? And I turned to my business partner, Lewis, and we giggled. <laughs> it was our contract. That's awesome. <laughs> At minimum, it was worth it for that. Yeah, it was great. And it was great to see it created now a living document, in fact, where they've, this particular company had changed some clauses and added some conditions. Great, great. It's out there. And the industry is, you know, born. The birth of an industry. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's even cooler? What? Sheep are not the only thing farmers are mixing with solar panels these days. After the break, we'll hear from a farmer growing all kinds of things beneath his solar panels. Squash, beans, eggplant, kale, kohlrabi, various types of lettuce, hot peppers. Oh, man. That's coming up.
welcome back. Before the break, I told you that it wasn't just sheep that farmers are mixing with solar, right? Mm-hmm. The more I started talking to people about sheep solar and about mixing ag with solar, the more people kept telling me to call this guy, Byron Komenek. He is the proprietor of Jack Solar Garden in Longmont, Colorado. And Byron is the guy growing that long list of veggies on his solar farm. Squash, beans, eggplant, kale, kohlrabi, various types of lettuce, hot peppers. Oh, man. There's so many more, too. (laughs) Byron's business is a little bit different from Judy and Lexi's. They take their sheep to a solar farm that already exists. Byron, he put solar panels on his family farm. And the reason he did it was in part money. You see, the farm used to mainly grow hay. The amount of hay that we're producing annually didn't really cover our utilities plus water rights plus property tax. And nationwide, there are a lot of farmers in Byron's position, unable to profitably farm their land. Between 2011 and 2016, we lost more than 11 million acres of farm and ranch land to development, according to a report by the American Farmland Trust. And when, and when you say we lost it to development, mm-hmm. that means like... We built a subdivision. Strip malls and subdivisions, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other farmers were in the position Byron was in, not making much money off of their land. So they sold it to real estate development. But Byron didn't want to do that. So he started looking around for other options. The thing that really resonated with us uh, was the potential of putting a solar array on our property to help out with you know, putting in more clean energy, seeing about how we can help out in the, the climate crisis that way, while also making some uh, additional revenue for our farm. And one of the things that really excites Byron about solar is how it can coexist with the agriculture on his farm. He's turned his farm into kind of a living laboratory to figure out all the ways solar and farming and nature can coexist. We partnered with the Audubon Rockies to install their largest Habitat Hero in in Colorado around the perimeter of our solar race. It's about an acre of land with 3,000 perennials, mainly shrubs like raspberries, blackberries, hazelnuts, elderberries, gooseberries, sand cherries, wax currants that create a habitat for birds to live in, as well as for insects, uh, snakes, and other things that are great to have adjacent to an agricultural activity. We have three different research institutions that are working with us, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, Colorado State University, and University of Arizona. We also work with a, a farming organization called Trout City Farms, where they take basically degraded land and turn it into uh, agricultural production, where They're cultivating food to put back in the community. And to date, they've grown about a ton of food. So 2,000 pounds of food donated the vast majority of that to a a local food shelter. What Byron is trying to do, if successful over the long term, could have huge implications for rural communities and our food supply. Because right now there is this tension between the growth of solar and the decline of farmland. And that's because ag land is very attractive to solar developers. Ag land is flat. It's already cleared. So they don't have to clear cut a forest or drain a swamp, right? Like the land is already sort of more or less usable. Right. And ag land tends to have road access. So it's easy to get equipment in and out. And it's generally relatively close to the grid. So they can easily move the power that they're generating. Right. A recent study out of Cornell University found that in New York State, for example, more than 40% of existing solar farms are on ag land. Hmm. 
So mixing ag use with solar is one way of not just keeping solar in business, it's a way for more farmers to do what Byron did, to keep ag land as ag land while also making enough money to stay in business. This summer, I talked to Lily Calderwood. She's an ag extension researcher at the University of Maine, and they're piloting a project to see if they can grow wild blueberries under a solar array. And it's not just blueberries. Researchers at the University of Massachusetts are looking at cranberries, and in the Southwest, they're looking at lettuce, tomato, and chili peppers. One study by Oregon State University researchers found that by converting 1% of ag land into agrivoltaics, we could meet 20% of the nation's energy demand. Wow. So like if we just sort of say, like take 1% of land that is currently just only agricultural and we Mm -hmm. find a way to sort of mix it with solar. Yeah. Wow. And the other thing is if this works, it doesn't just ease the tension between using farmland for energy, it may also solve this other climate problem, which is the question of conditions of work on farms. Basically, solar panels provide shade, and we know that as it gets hotter because of climate change, that it's harder and harder on farm workers. So if you're harvesting a crop and you can do it in full hot sun or under the shade of a solar panel, under the shade is better. Right. Byron is so excited about the potential of mixing ag and solar that he hosts events right there on the farm so people can see what's going on for themselves. The kids come out for workshops. They went out into our much taller portion of the solar array and they danced underneath the solar panels. We've held a handful of events out there. We even had a banjo player come out and play the banjo for 25 people. And we have a fundraiser where we're hoping to have 100 plus people come out for some food, some music, some dance, and to be able to hang out with the folks that have been working on this project for the past few years. How do people react when they come out and they see two things that don't seem like they fit together, but do? You know, it, it, it's so nice how often, like, just strangers thank me for doing this. We had a, a event for the Audubon Rockies a few weeks ago where there was 120 people that came out to the farm. And quite a few folks just stopped me and said, you know, thanks. Like, we, we really appreciate being able to see this. We appreciate understanding more about how these two things can be co-located. Nobody really knows until you see it, right? It's so cool when you think about this. Like, he's basically having a party on his land, which is, like, a power generation plant, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> but, like, when you think of, like, a typical fossil fuel power generation plant, like not a place you want to party. No. And it's funny, as I was learning about this and getting to see it firsthand, it made me think a lot about where my energy comes from. Right. Um, I live pretty close to a power plant. Um, it's actually kind of famous because in 2018, a transformer station there had an accident and turned the New York City skyline blue. I remember that. Um, <laughs> and everybody thought it was aliens, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, actually? Um, according to, you know quote-unquote, scientists. (laughs) The accident, for complicated reasons, caused electrons to be released, which, when mixed with, like, the gases in our atmosphere, turned the sky blue. But, you know, so they say. QDX files (laughs) music, yes. The the truth is out there, Alex. (laughs) So anyway, this is the plant you went to go see. Yeah, I took my bike out to go see it. Somebody had carved out this little seating closet, these giant concrete benches, 
as though a really beautiful place to rest is while watching a smokestack of um, burning oil for electricity. This neighborhood has, you know, pretty high rates of asthma for New York City because of the pollution. When I got here, I thought, you know, I wouldn't see much, but in the distance, there's this, like, tower just flaring gas. So what does it look like? What is it like a parking lot? Is it like, what is it? What are you looking at? I mean, it's huge. It's more than a city block. So it's this massive industrial facility. And there are these big black boxes all over the place that look like giant car batteries. Uh-huh. It just looks like a factory. It looks very industrial. Right. Very gray and black and lots of asphalt. Um, and very, I don't know when it was actually built, but it feels very like the 19th century. Right. What was striking is how different it felt from the other power plant I'd visited. You know, the solar farm in upstate New York where Judy's sheep were grazing. It's a lot more alive than I thought it would be. Yeah. So those are frogs? (laughs) Living in the wet part under the array. Oh yeah, you can see them breathing. (laughs) The solar farm didn't feel like the 19th century. It was this mashup between high and low tech that that felt like the future. So all of this is really rethinking what a landscape should look like for us. That's exactly right. It's, and I think it's everyone rethinking what a landscape looks like. It really does feel like we're walking through a meadow. So, and this is super important to me. These solar sites are here creating energy, but the land is still being used and is important in the environment. This is terrific bee habitat. If you look around, we have a lot of flowering plants. Mm -hmm. And even though the sheep rotationally graze through things, we still have rotational growth of flowering plants. So there's lots of different pollen for the pollinators to take advantage of. This site can become more productive with solar panels on it because it has different agriculture than it had before. So this is actually a way not just of using land differently, but in many ways using land better in addition to generating solar energy. I love this. If you, like Judy, love this, we have a link to resources where you can learn more about agrovoltaics, both the sheep and the plant kind, in our newsletter and in our show notes. If you are by any chance a sheep grazer looking to get into solar or a solar developer in search of a good shepherd, check out the American Solar Grazing Association's website for resources. That's at solargrazing.org. There's also been some policy movement on this front. Earlier this year, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced funding for a new project to optimize design for agrovoltaic systems. It's a four-year project, and if you want to check it out, those links will be in our show notes, along with links to Judy, Lexi, and Byron's Farms. We'll also have information on the blueberry and cranberry projects that we mentioned in this episode as well. And if you still haven't gotten enough sheep, really, can anyone ever have enough sheep? We have a little surprise for you after the credits.
How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg. This episode was produced by you, Kendra Pierre-Lewis. Our other producers are Anna Ladd, Rachel Waldholtz, and Hannah Chin. Our intern is Nicole Welch. Our supervising producers are Lauren Silverman and Caitlin Boguki. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard with original music by Peter Leonard, Catherine Anderson, and Emma Munger. Our fact checker this episode is James Gaines. Special thanks to Alex DePillis at the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Antonia Waxman and Brooks Mixon at Sunraised Farms. And thanks to all of you for listening. See you next week. So coming here is an example of the sheep outsmarting me. When we brought the sheep in the springtime, I try to bring sheep that have not been bred. They're a year old and they haven't had a baby yet. Um, or sheep that did not get bred for one reason or another as part of my main flock. Well, one ewe we brought, uh, two weeks after I said, oh, she's not going to have a baby, we came one day and there was a brand new baby on the solar farm. Um, so the baby is named after the solar company that runs the solar arrays uh, because we just thought it was a, an appropriate tribute to them. And so she's been with her mom all season. 